Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Office of Personnel Management had a relatively successful year chipping away at a large retirement inventory. You and I know that as a backlog. But now OPM must brace for a surge in federal retirement claims at the same time it's working on a big modernizing project. Here with more, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Drew, at the beginning of the year, that's when they can expect generally a surge in retirement claims. Is that the way it works? That is typically what we will see, Tom. So, for example, in 2023, uh, even though you had about 89,000 federal employees file for retirement over the course of the entire year, about 12,400 of those claims were processed just in January by itself. Compare that to December, the month before, not even half that amount, just about 5,500 retirement claims were filed. A lot of federal employees like to retire at the very end of the calendar year, December 31st, or the first day of the new year, just because that kind of helps with financial benefits, or maybe you're trying to get a better cost of living adjustment. So there's a couple different reasons feds might choose to do that. But the numbers show that there definitely is a pretty significant uptake at the beginning of each calendar year for that. And for OPM to handle that surge, this is all done by hand, by paperwork. So is the way that they handle it is just brute force manpower. That's pretty much their plan each year. So OPM likes to staff up during January, February, March. And with more people, of course, that means the processing can go a little bit faster in advance. So a couple months ahead, they also try to, at least during 2023, they tried to be a little bit more proactive by offering information on how to reduce errors in applications. So getting ahead of that can help with the processing times. If there's nothing wrong with the application when it's submitted, then that should help speed things up a little bit. And of course, bringing more people on. OPM's Deputy Director Rob Shriver says that collaboration has other benefits as well. It's really a great exchange to have people who are doing the work at the agency side see the way that it happens at OPM. So they can not only help us during the surge period, but then take that knowledge back to their agencies. And we also learn from the agencies uh, when we're working side by side with them, uh, what their pain points are. And Drew, you've reported that at the end of last year, the retirement claim, they call it inventory, I guess we'll go with inventory, but it's ones that are people are waiting to get their final annuity. Let's put it that way. Just give us a rundown on the numbers. The numbers are actually really looking pretty good right now, Tom. Currently, there are about 14,300 cases sitting in the inventory uh, or backlog, however, what which way you want to cut it. Uh, it's actually the smallest retirement claims backlog, backlog that OPM has had since December 2017 when there was about that same number of cases. So if you look from the beginning of 2023, so in January up until December just last month, they reduced the case inventory overall by 34%. So that means the cases in the inventory are now one third less than they were before. Now we're seeing about 15,000 or so cases, 36,000 pending claims a couple of years ago. So they've had some major progress there. However, on the other side, the case inventory is still pretty significantly above what they call their steady state goal. So OPM has this goal of having 13,000 pending retirement claims at any given time. Right now, there are about 1,200 cases above that. So they're looking to improve that a little bit further, I believe. But they've also been trending in the right direction in terms of how long it takes to process a claim. It's a little bit over uh, 60 days right now on average. And there's also been a decreasing number of cases going into their system 
that come in with errors. So that's uh, an important step as well. They're also at the same time trying to improve retirement services. I guess that's what you might call OPM's customer experience drive. And so that's separate from what they need to do to process the claims. What are they doing on that improvement side for retirement services. Right, Tom, as you mentioned, the process as it stands right now is pretty much entirely paper-based and that can slow things down pretty significantly. So what they're trying to do is undergo this really big modernization project. It's not something necessarily new that OPM is trying, but they're trying it in a slightly different way this time. They're looking, for example, to take a couple smaller steps. They launched a retirement online application pilot. They launched a chatbot pilot. So that answers a couple of basic questions about retirement. Those are a couple small steps they took during 2023 to try to chip away at this large modernization project. OPM's deputy director, Rob Shriver, says that the agency is trying to essentially learn from the past. There have been efforts in the past to do it as one big modernization that haven't been as successful. And so we're just kind of chipping away at that taking um, kind of a modular approach to making sure that, you know, we're modernizing the entire system. But in the meantime, we have people that need to be served and they need to be served um, quickly and effectively. The essential problem here, Drew, right, is that to figure out someone's annuity, you have to know exactly where they worked, under what particular rules or regulations they worked, and for exactly how much time they worked and what their particular salary was and what that therefore contributed to that final annuity over the course of a long career. So if someone joined agriculture department at 22 and left at 62, that's pretty easy. But people that worked at 10 different agencies, maybe under different authorities, maybe outside of the GS for a while, inside the GS for a while, and so on, which is not all that untypical, it becomes this exercise in logic and calculation. Am am I describing it right? I think you are right in the sense that there are a lot of different pitfalls or different points along the, the path that applicants can make mistakes. OPM maybe won't catch a mistake early. Maybe the employing agency won't see something, and so it can really extend the processing time. I've heard from a lot of federal employees and retirees who, you know, even though the wait time is on average, as OPM says, about 60 or so days to process the application, a lot of feds are waiting much longer than that. You know, sometimes it can be six months. I've heard cases where it takes up to a year or two years to process that retirement application. And I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the more immediate frustration from federal employees and retirees. So at the same time that OPM is trying to take on this big modernization project, they're also trying to balance, okay, who are the federal retirees and employees who need help right now and how can we help them? Right. And so what their answer, one of the answers has been around for many years. They give you what they think is close to your actual annuity minus a certain amount for safety. And then when they actually figure it out, you get that back pay of your annuity. And then from then on, you get your proper annuity. That is one way that they're trying to address it. They also just last year released what they call a retirement quick guide that tries to explain the process a little bit more transparently to anyone who's retiring because they get a lot of questions about, you know, where is my application in the process or why isn't it processed yet? So they're trying to get out ahead of it a little bit, in a sense, and try to help federal employees where they can. Uh, But one other thing, you know, I also recently reported on 
improper payments through retirement services. That's an interesting angle of this as well. There have been a lot, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in overpayments to federal annuitants that they try to recover over time, but there's a lot of error throughout the entire process. It's not just on the application end as well. Right. And so the other question now, there could be a government shutdown, and we don't know how long it would be if there was. And during that time, what happens? Do they still process claims? It's a little bit complicated. OPM, on OPM side of things, they continue to work during a shutdown. Their retirement services staff stays continuing working as normal. But that doesn't necessarily mean that applications will get processed at the same speed because it'll depend on the employing agency as well. So depending on what your own agency is doing and if their retirement services staff or their HR staff are not working or get furloughed, then you might start to see some delays. Maybe your application is still with your agency and not with OPM yet. That means that you might not see your application process right away. So that's where you might see see some the backlog grow if we were to see a shutdown. Or you can work forever, but I don't think anyone wants to do that. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman, thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Kolmstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many 
different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any 
technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how are are things going, Um, because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, 
And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's... Uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.